Now go ahead and go to Hebrews chapter 2 tonight. And Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to go ahead we'll read the first four verses and then uh, we'll start going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. But it says in verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to His will. So those who see the book of Hebrews as a dangerous book, remember I mentioned that last week, how dispensational preachers saying it's a dangerous book. If you're not careful, you can end up in a lot of false doctrine in the book of Hebrews just because of the fact that, you know, it looks like you can lose your salvation in there. And obviously, there's losing salvation is not in the book of Hebrews. And then also... Another thing too, and I, I didn't talk about this last week, but another false teaching about Hebrews is a lot of people look at Hebrews through Revelation as based, or Hebrews through uh, Jude as like tribulation epistles for the Jews. And I'll say that these are for the Jews. And so the reason you see people losing their salvation in the book of Hebrews is because in the tribulation, you can lose your salvation if you take the mark of the beast. Now, that's just ridiculous, and we'll, uh, we'll show as we go through the book of Hebrews the verses that they will use to try to say you can lose your salvation, which they'll say that's proof that you know this is talking about another dispensation. But the problem is, you don't even see losing your salvation in Hebrews. So, it doesn't prove anything. But it just shows that these people don't know what they're talking about. But they, do, they, they say it's dangerous, and, but the, thing, the reason for that is the preachers who are saying this, and dispensationalists are some of the worst about this, is these are a group of preachers who use very little Scripture in their messages. They use one verse. They think that they are going deep into the body Bible and studying deep because of the fact that they will focus an entire message on just one verse or sometimes even one little phrase in a verse. But the thing is, that does not work because of the fact when you just zero in on one verse, a lot of times you miss context. You miss the big picture. And so, therefore, you end up getting all mixed up. And that's why it's good to go, if, you, know, you know, look at the whole chapter, look at the whole book, you know, understand an overview of what you're looking at. And when you do that, it will help you avoid a lot of just maybe, you know, or help you understand some of the more confusing scriptures. I mean, I've heard people use Hebrews 2.1. You know, where it talks about, let's say, time we should let them slip. You know, like it's something you can lose. And they'll use that as proof you can lose your salvation. Which proves this is another dispensation. Because we know we have eternal security now. Ridiculous. That is not what that verse is talking about. And I'll, I'll go into that here in a little bit. But, uh, you know, the important thing you have to understand about the book of Hebrews is that it's written to a group of people who were a part of the right religion. Okay, was Judaism not the correct religion before uh, Jesus' ministry? Obviously, it was. But as a group, it's clear that they not all Jews were completely sold on the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, many of them got it, but you know we see most of them didn't. They did not accept him 
as their Messiah. But at the same time, they were in the right religion, okay? There's a lot of Baptists, people that are in Baptist churches, who are there in the right religion, they're in the right church, but they're not saved, okay? You can be in the right religion and not be saved. That's very, that's very possible. You can be in a good church and not be saved. And there was a lot of Jews throughout the Old Testament even that were in the right place, that were in the right church, that were in the right congregation, but they were not saved. They were not of faith. They were not believers. And so here he's talking to a people who in their lifetime, you know, they were in the right religion. But we see things are changing, don't we? When Jesus Christ came along, things changed, okay? They quit doing the sacrifices. Jesus fulfilled all and finished all of those carnal ordinances and things that they had before. So big changes were happening because of what Jesus did. And just because they were a part of the right religion, it did not guarantee salvation for them. It did not guarantee personal salvation. But at the same time, being a part of the right religion, it would make it more likely for you to get personal salvation, wouldn't you? I mean, don't you think people in a fundamental Baptist church have a better chance of getting saved than people in a Catholic church? And shouldn't Jews have been some of the first people that would have gotten saved? Since they're the people that are looking for the Messiah, they're the people that had the Scriptures that, as we saw last week, was full of Scriptures about Jesus. So, I mean, when it, 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 it's, it only makes sense that these people would be more likely to receive the truth. And so, in Jesus' day, if you were part of the church, then you were in the right religion, the one that God recognized, but that did not mean you were saved. And when the Jews as a whole rejected their Messiah the kingdom was taken from them and given to another nation. Jesus said that was going to happen. The kingdom was going to be taken to you, taken from you and given to another nation. So the physical people and the physical nation was no longer the place to be. There was no longer an advantage to being a physical Jew because that didn't matter. It, it, um, it didn't, it, there was no advantage to being from the geographical location of Israel. The church was now made up of people who were both Jew and Gentile. People who were the spiritual seed of Abraham, not the physical seed of Abraham. And so, you know, if those Hebrews that the book of Hebrews was written to accept Jesus as their Messiah, they now become a part of that church that God was now using. The one made up of both Jews and Gentiles. But if they reject Jesus, people who were a part of the right religion, people who were where they needed to be to be a part of the kingdom, they could lose that. They, that was what they were in, the, in danger of losing. And so whoever's writing Hebrews here, if these people don't listen to what he's telling them, they're going to lose the kingdom. They're, going to, uh, they're not going to be saved. And so when he says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip, he's telling them, you know, hey, we better listen to the things we've heard. You better listen to those Old Testament scriptures like we looked at last week. He referred, in chapter 1, he referred to a whole bunch of scriptures from the Old Testament and showing that this was talking about Jesus, someone who is so much better than the angels, the only begotten Son of God. We better listen to the things that we are hearing the things that we heard from Jesus Christ, the things that we heard from the Scriptures, otherwise, we're going to lose them. Not going to lose, you, know, you can't lose personal salvation. 
Okay? But these people, this group of Hebrews that are being written to, they could lose what they had. Okay? They were in the right place, but as a whole, many of them, and as a whole, the physical Jews, they did reject Jesus, didn't they? Not all of them did. Many of them believed, and so therefore, you could say they, they kept what they had. They were in the right religion, and they stayed in the right religion as it, as it moved on, as it became a body of believers of both Jews and Gentiles. And so, um, verse, so, you know, the writer here, he's trying to show them they have no reason to not trust the words that were preached to them. Because he says in verse 2, you know, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If the things that angels said came to pass, and Jesus, who was so much better than the angels, why would we not think that those things would come to pass? That's what he's talking about right there. So if, if the angels' words came to pass, there is no doubt the words of Jesus, who is better than the angels, they will come to pass. And not only did they have the words of Jesus, but they also had God the Father in agreement as well as the Holy Ghost. Look what it says in verse 4. It says, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. So, you know, it wasn't just Jesus you know, who said these things. But you know what? The Holy Spirit also was put on display. You know, God gave Jesus the ability to do miracles. And we've seen all these things. You see, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost all in agreement, all bearing witness of the same thing. There is no reason for us to not trust what we heard from Jesus. And, you know, and this is just a side note here. But why was it so hard for the Jews? Somebody tell me, why was it so hard for the Jews... To accept Jesus Christ. Fiddler on the roof. Tradition! You know, they loved that tradition. They were so entrenched in that that they just... And, and he's telling them... And, you know, we, do, we all have our traditions. We all love our traditions. Okay? I don't think I could ever bring myself to having service, midweek service on Thursday night. I don't think I could do that. All right? Is there anything biblically wrong with it? Absolutely not. So why don't we do it on Thursday night? Tradition, you know. I mean, I got no Bible for that. Well, Jesus died on a Wednesday night, so that eh, no, it's tradition. All right, you know. Why are you still wearing a suit and tie when you preach? You know, tradition. You know, we all have those things that we're really into, and it would just take a lot to get me to change some of these things. And so imagine these people who had some of these traditions for you know thousands of years, and then now all of a sudden all these sacrifices, all these feasts and things that they did for years and years and years come along and saying Jesus finished it, don't do it anymore. What? Are you are you serious? You know, listen, that's that's going to be a tough pill to swallow, folks. But we've got no reason to doubt this. Okay, the only begotten Son of God came. And it was proved that He was the Son of God. He did the miracles. I mean, the Father bared witness of it. The Holy Spirit bared witness of this. You know, at the mouth of two or three witnesses. And we got three witnesses all in agreement. We have no reason to neglect this great salvation. And that's what He's trying to tell them here. Let's not let this slip. 
Let's not neglect this. This is the, this is the truth. We've got no reason to doubt it at all. But yet they did, didn't they? They, they were so into their traditions and doing the works themselves. And, and many of them missed it. Look at verse 5. It says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Okay? So, what all, what all is being said right here? There's, there's some really interesting things in here. Well, first off, notice though, this world, it was not made to be ruled by angels. It was made to be ruled by Jesus. Okay? It says in, in verse 5, you know, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. Okay? This world, we're not, we're not here to serve angels. You know, it, the, this world is going to be ruled by Jesus Christ. He is going to put all things under His feet, not the angels. Once again, just showing the superiority of Jesus over the angels. And so, um, and then He goes on and He starts quoting more Old Testament Scripture. Okay, And He goes to Psalms chapter 8. Look at what it says in Psalms chapter 8 and verse 3. He does a direct quote from there. But it says, When I consider the work of thy, the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. So right here, we've got another prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. And you know, say, you know, what is man? Okay, and understand that David here, you know, he's you know he's looking at the heavens, he's considering everything, and he's like, you know, what is the big deal about man? And under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he writes this passage, and he mentions how you've made him a little lower than the angels, and that you mean you've you've crowned him with glory and honor, and you've put all things under his feet. What is that talking about? Well, we know that's talking about Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ became a man. Jesus Christ was made a little lower than the angels. And all things are going to be put under the feet of Jesus Christ. So right here, once again, he just keeps going back to the Old Testament to show the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. To show that you folks are not denying anything. You are doing what you are always meant to do if you follow after Jesus Christ. And so, um, he, but notice in verse 8, kind of a confusing verse. So thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So, and then this it almost looks like it, contradict, it contradicts himself here. It says, but now we see not yet all things put under him. So let me ask you a question: Are all things under his feet right now, or are they not? They're not. Okay, but. If I say that, okay, if I say all things are not put under his feet yet, it would be real easy for a dispensationalist to come along and to take a, find a verse somewhere in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament to prove that all things are under his feet. 
And this is, this is one of the things that you got to understand about dispensationalists. This is, this is how they can trick you. There's, they, they're always trying to make God follow all these rules that they come up with. Okay? And that's why they've always come up with these time periods and dispensations and things. And this is where they get all messed up. There are some, certain verses I'm about to show you that you'll, just, you'll never hear dispensationalists talk about them. Because, and, um, and, but at the same, you know, what I'm, say, I'm saying right now, all things are not under His feet right now. But I'm sure there's plenty of verses that dispensationalists could bring up to show different. That, you know, we're having a debate. They can open up a scripture and make me look stupid because I, I take an opposite position on that. Even though right here, I mean, it, it kind of says He has all things under His feet, but then He says He doesn't have all things under His feet. So what's going on here? How do we make sense of this passage? Well, look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. This is just another verse I want to show you to show that all things are not under His feet yet. And it says, for as in Ad- verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Has Jesus Christ reigned on this earth yet? Has he, has he put all enemies under his feet yet? No, it's saying here, this is something that's going to come. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Has death been destroyed yet? Obviously not. For he has put all things... For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. So did he put? A, what's going on here, brother McCray? Said, like a termite and a yo-yo, you know. And when and when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So, all right, it's clear. That all things have not been put under his feet, okay? There's still death, okay? There's still funerals every day. People are dying every day. So what is this talking about? Well, this is this is the key. This is the thing that we've got that people have got to understand that would help us overcome a lot of the dispensational stupidity that's being taught in churches today that people are falling for. Because it's real easy for them to take some of these verses like that and get y'all confused and wonder what's going on and then make you feel stupid, and then just ultimately come to the conclusion, you know what, I'm not smart enough, I'll just listen to them. And that's ultimately what dispensationalists try to do. You know, they want you dependent on on them. But you know what, here's the thing. All things are finished in eternity, but not in this timeline that we are living in. That's the thing we've got to understand. Look at Hebrews 4.3. Hebrews 4.3 says, for we have been, or for we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. So when were the works finished? Were they finished when Jesus said it is finished on the cross? You know, we've got all these goofballs that don't like what we teach about Jesus, you know, going to hell because he said it is finished when he was on the cross. But here in Hebrews 4 3 says. The works were finished from the foundation of the world. Well, what works? You know, what works exactly? Well, I think all the, all the works were finished from the foundation of the world. 
Okay, so in eternity, it's all done, but in our current timeline that you and I are living in, not all things are complete, are they? Not all things are done. Okay, but understand that if God says that something is going to happen, it's as good as happened. That's the thing we've got to understand. Look at what it says in Romans 4.17. Turn over to Romans chapter 4 and verse 17. This, this is a verse I've never heard a dispensationalist bring up this passage right here. Because this, this messes up all their rules they try to make. It, it, it destroys all of that. But it says in verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Okay? God says this to Abraham before he has any children. He said, I've made you a father of many nations. Was Abraham a father of many nations at that moment? No, he didn't even have any children. But he said, I've made you a father of many nations. Well, which nations? I, I don't even have any children. But he's saying it like it's already happened. And then it says, and let's keep reading, before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. God often talks about things that are not, in other words, things that haven't happened yet, as though they were, as though they already happened. Why is that? Because if God says something is going to happen, it is going to happen. And you've got all these people that are trying to, you know, know the Old Testament saints could not have gone to heaven because Jesus hadn't paid for sins yet. But you know what? They got into heaven on the promise of Jesus being crucified. God was not up in heaven. No, I can't let you guys in yet because I don't know. What if Jesus doesn't come through? What if I don't come through on what I have commanded? So you know what? We're going to stick you down in good hell until you know Jesus gets all done. And you know, you realize how ridiculous that is? Okay, they got it on promise. All right, they have they have the promise, and if God gives a promise, it's as good as being done. Now that's foreign to us because none of us can say that. All of us have you know, not come through on some of our promises before, but God never has and He never will. And God was... I don't care what rules the dispensationalists try to come up with, God could let those people in heaven in the Old Testament who were of faith, even though the blood had not been shed on the cross yet in their current timeline because of the fact that it had been promised and God often speaks as those you know, things which be not as though they were. Let's keep reading. And it says in verse 18, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. Wait, he believed so he would become. God already said he was. Which is it? Okay, it says, um, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. You know what happened right there? God imputed righteousness to Abraham because he believed. Well, what does that mean? It means he received righteousness. Well, how did he receive righteousness? The dispensationalists will want to tell you well it was by works. But it said, all it says he did was believe God. And he received righteousness. It was imputed unto him. And where do we get our righteousness from? We have imputed righteousness. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
So how did Abraham get his when it had the blood hadn't been shed yet? Didn't matter. It was imputed. He got it on promise. And God was not worried about the fact that it hadn't happened yet. God wasn't worried whether it was going to happen or not. The very fact that it was promised sealed the deal right there. It, doesn't, it didn't matter that it had not happened in Abraham's timeline. And it doesn't matter... that. So if, if you want to say Jesus put all things under His feet, go ahead. You can say that. Because of the fact that God said it's going to happen, I mean, no matter what they do, no matter what the devil plans, I mean, he's going to lose. There is nothing that anybody can do to change that. He will lose. So yeah, it's as good as done. Okay, and so as far as eternity is concerned, it's done. As far as God's concerned, who declares the end from the beginning, it's done. As far as we're concerned and our timeline that we are trapped in, yeah, it's not done yet. But you can see how you can find verses in the Bible that will kind of show it both ways. And it's because of the fact that that's just how things are often spoken in the Bible. And so, Old Testament saints who are of faith... They went to heaven when they died. They didn't go to good hell waiting for Jesus. They went to heaven. And so, uh, don't fall for that foolish teaching. And I'll show you more on that here in a little bit if we have time. But um, look at uh, verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. It says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So notice here in this passage, it's explaining how Jesus was willing to suffer not just to bring us to glory, but... Uh, you know, because of what he did for us, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Hey, now, now think about that for a second. Okay, we all know that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves; it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But because of what Jesus Christ did, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Now, think about that for a second. Okay, I mean, how many of you ever had a brother or sister? Physical or even spiritual that you were ashamed to be called their brother. It's like, now, now why was that? Well, it was because of their works. It was because of what they did. And it's very clear here in this passage that there are no works that we did that would make God proud of us or not ashamed of us. Whose work was it that makes it so God is not to be ashamed or he's not ashamed to call us brethren? It's the work of Jesus Christ. We see how, I mean, when it comes to salvation, all glory goes to Him. He is not ashamed to call us brethren, not because of our performance in our Christian walk, but because of the cleansing that we received from Jesus Christ. It was good. It, it washed away our sins. It did the job. And this is proof that, once again, that Jesus did it all. We have nothing to boast about. And it also, and look at what it says in verse 9. We see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for, for the suffering of death. Okay, He did that so He had to come as a man so He could suffer as a man and die as a man. 
And so he could taste death for every man. Now, I talked about this a while back when I preached the message about Jesus going to hell, but I want to, I want to show this again because it's fitting for what we're talking about. But turn over to John chapter 8 and verse 51. And I never hear anybody who, you know, scoffs at what we teach about Jesus and where he was for the three days and three nights, uh, you know, at, when he died. They, they never want to, they never bring this up. They never try to, they never try to refute any of our scriptures. All they do is scream, it is finished. That's all, that's all they do. Uh, but look what it says in the eight, uh, John 8.51. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Okay? So, if, what does that mean? We're never going to die physically? Or is that talking about never dying spiritually? Okay? There's no doubt here he's talking about we'll never die spiritually. Because we're going to die physically if the Lord tarries His coming. Verse 52. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast the devil... Abraham is dead and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never taste of death. Okay? Those others saying Abraham is dead. Okay? Jesus said, remember what God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Well, do you realize the people who, you know, scoff at what we teach about Jesus going to hell, their main argument that they use is denying the King James Bible's translation of the word hell should be Sheol, the grave, you know, or Hades, you know, place of the dead. Well, here's the problem with that. They weren't dead. Abraham wasn't dead. Isaac wasn't dead. You know why? Because they were saved. Therefore, they never tasted of death. And so why would we go to Sheol, the grave? Why would we go to Hades, the ever going to Hades, the place of the dead, when we don't ever have to taste of death. And so, we see how he mentions that here. Let's keep reading verse 53. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead, whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is the Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his saying... Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and thou hast seen Abraham. And Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. So, I mean, right here, we see how Jesus has meant, you know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He was looking forward to something, and he saw it. What do you think he was excited about seeing? Good hell or heaven? You know? Seeing the Lord, you know, hey, he saw me. He's it's it's the it's the most ridiculous teaching in the world that these people have, and it says right there that Jesus tasted death for us. He did it for us so we wouldn't have to. So if Jesus just died and went to paradise or heaven, then you know, how was that tasting death for us? We're going to have to do that if the Lord tears is coming. We're going to have to taste of death according to them. But he said we never will. That means he had to have been talking about death in hell. That's what we miss. That's what we don't ever have to do. Saved or lost, we are going to have to physically die one of these days. But when Jesus was talking about tasting of death, so we wouldn't have to, he was talking about hell. He tasted it for us for three days. You know, that, that is what is very clear in the Bible. And it says 
in uh, Acts chapter 2. Uh, where is it at? In Acts chapter 2. Oh, I know I put it in my notes here somewhere. 24 says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be holding of it. He, he was raised up. God raised Him up, loosing the pains of death. Well, if He was in paradise, why was He in pain? Nobody ever wants to answer that one either. All they want to do is scream, It is finished. That's all they do, just like a person in a crazy home, you know, beating their head against the wall. It is finished. It is finished. That, that's all they've got. And so, uh, right there, it's, it's very clear what Jesus did for us. And it, it, it was in this passage in Hebrews chapter 2, it's explained how He was willing to suffer for us just to bring us to glory. And because of what He did, He is not ashamed to call us brethren. Where do we get to do any bragging in this? Where is boasting then? It is excluded. I mean, we've all glory goes to God. And I, you know, I don't want to rant on this right now, but I'm just kind of feeling it right now because I'm planning on ranting on this, you know, probably ranting on some of this Sunday night. But this is when this, it fries my gizzard when I listen to these big pompous camp meeting preachers just get up going absolutely nuts on their changed life. It makes me sick to listen to them talk about how they repented of their sins and how they know they're saved because of that. If God is not ashamed to call you brethren, it has nothing to do with your works. It has everything to do with what He did. And these same crazy people, what makes them go nuts in church? I've been watching these people. I've been studying these people. You know what makes them run around and swing from the rafters? Yeah, swing from the rafters. I just watched a video of that today. You know what makes them? It's when people are you know, singing and talking about their changed life. That's what makes them go nuts. That's what makes the girls scream. Literally scream. When they start singing about their changed life, they're screaming. They're glorying in themselves. Where do you get that from the Scripture? Where do you get glorying in yourself? Where, do, where in the world does a preacher get getting up in church and making everybody doubt their salvation because of their life. Pointing to themselves as an example. And these same doofuses, they call themselves Holy Ghost preachers. They're Holy Ghost preachers because they don't use outlines. They don't even use any Scripture. They just start ranting just wherever the Holy Spirit leads. And the Holy Spirit always seems to lead these people into bragging on themselves. The Holy Spirit does not do that. The Holy Spirit's going to point people to Jesus Christ. That's, I'm, I'm starting to preach some of tonight's, or Sunday night's message. I got, I got to watch it. But that, that is what the Holy Spirit does. These guys, they all want to point at themselves. And you know what? I'm just going to say it. A lot of these preachers that I see point to themselves and using themselves as an example, I know some of these guys. I know some of what goes on in their ministry. I know what goes on in some of their life. And some of these people are garbage. They are not good preachers. They are not good people. They are not honest. They are not ethical. They're liars. I mean, they're a bunch of covetous, you know, just thieves, false prophets. And when I have to sit there and listen to these people brag on their sorry selves and make people think they're not saved because they don't measure up to them, it makes me sick. It makes that has nothing to do with the message, but I just felt that. Holy Ghost preaching right there. You know, just throw out the outline. But 
you know, when, when you see that in Hebrews, how he's not ashamed to call us brethren, and when you start looking at everything he's been talking about, it's like, that has nothing to do with our works. It has everything to do with what he did. I mean, it, it'll make you sick to listen to that kind of preaching. And, uh, and it makes me sick. Look at Hebrews 2.12. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. This, this is another verse here that will make the dispensationalist head spin. It says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church while I sing praise unto thee. Okay? Now, this is this verse. It will make a lot of people's head spin. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Hebrews 2.12 is actually quoting Psalms 22.22. Go ahead and turn back to Psalms 22.22. Oh, you know, the church started at Pentecost. Where do you see the church in the Old Testament? Well, Psalms 22.22 is one place. No, no, church is not there. Look what it says. It says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation... Well, I praise you. That says congregation, not church. Same thing. Alright? It's the same thing. And we see that in the Old, in the Old Testament and New Testament where it uses the word congregation in the Old Testament. It'll use the word church in the New Testament. You know why? Because it's the same thing. Alright? Congregation and church are the same thing. This is not a mistranslation. Okay? It's just, it's the, it's the same thing. It's the same word. The church. It's a, it's a congregation or a body of believers. They are the same thing. And you know, that the church was mentioned in Psalm 22, 22. And this is just further proof the church didn't start at Pentecost. Okay? The Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost. Okay? And the, you know, the church was empowered on Pentecost like never before. But at the same time, God has always had... He's had that congregation since you know, children of Israel when He brought them out into the wilderness. They were a congregation. They were His people. One that He had given His law to. One He had given His words to. A chosen people. A chosen generation. A holy nation. He, it was way back there in the wilderness. And it's something that is still here today. We are a part of that. We are a continuation of something that started a long time ago. Look at verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 12, or 2. It says, And again... I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. This is another quote from the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 17. Isaiah 8, verse 17 says, And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. So right here, the writer is just giving more scriptural evidence that this is what they were waiting for. That this, what is going on here in the church with Jesus Christ, this is what you've all been reading about for generations. This is what you were waiting for. You are not turning your back on anything that you shouldn't turn your back on. You are moving forward going exactly where you were always meant to go and be where you were meant to be. And so, um, since we, you know, since we were flesh and blood and in bondage to sin and death, Jesus had to come to conquer those things in the flesh. And that's why He's able to comfort us. Look what it says. Uh, go back to uh, verse 14. It says, For as much then as children 
of the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself had suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So we see it was, it was behooved him. It was necessary for Jesus Christ to come in the flesh. Okay? He had to, he couldn't have the nature of angels. Okay? Angels can't die. Okay? He had to come in the flesh. Just like you and I, because one of the things that we are, we've always been in bondage to, mankind has always been in bondage to, is death. Isn't that something we all have to worry about? We all have to worry about physically dying. Isn't that every parent's greatest fear with their children? That you, you know, you might, you know, don't do that. You might get killed. And that's something that we don't want to happen. It's something that, you know, we can't, uh, we can't undo. And so the, and the reason that we all die is clear in the Bible. The reason we all die is because we're all sinners. Because we are sinful, we are going to die. Even if you're a good person, you do all the healthiest things you could possibly do, eventually your body is going to wear out and you are going to die. And so Jesus Christ, if He was going to pay for that sin, the sin that we did in the flesh, He had to come made out of the same flesh that you and I are made out of. He took on Him the seed of Abraham and He did. He lived a life just like we did. He was uh, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And so because of that, He is able to secure them that are tempted. In other words, you know, he, he can comfort us. He knows what we're feeling. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. I mean, that is, that is who we have. And that could not have been done unless God sent His Son to be made a little lower than the angels in the likeness of sinful men. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And for 4,000 years, this is another thing to just ponder a little bit. Something you can think about when you're laying in bed tonight. For 4,000 years, Jesus watched man fail over and over again. And then finally, He came to earth to show everybody how it's done. Okay? Have, you ever, have you ever done that, parents? You've been trying to show your kid how to do something. It's just like, you know, come on, can you, can you do this? Can you do this? And it's like they just can't figure it out. And sometimes you just get frustrated and you just step in and you end up doing it yourself, don't you? And you realize that's what Jesus had to do for us. That's what Jesus had to do for mankind. We see how in the beginning in Genesis... How man was living 900 and some years. Well, you'd think people would get a lot of wisdom during that time. You'd think they'd learn a few things and man would be better. But you know what? The world was full of violence. Man couldn't handle all that time. God ends up sending the flood, destroys the whole world. He changes the lifespan where they're living about 120 years. And we see it was just a short time and they end up doing the Tower of Abel. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. And so then God ends up just kind of starting with Abraham. God focuses all attention on Abraham. He's going to focus all his attention on one nation. He chooses the nation of Israel. 
Out of all the nations in the world, he ends up picking the least of the nations. He picks Israel. He gives them his law. He focuses all his attention attention on them. And what do they do? They fail. I mean, they fail. They cannot keep the law for generations and generations. He's given them chance after chance after chance. He does miracles. He blesses them. He sends a judge to deliver them. Later, they end up getting a king. That was a failure. I mean, just failure, failure, failure. And then finally, what does he do? God sends His Son in the likeness of sinful man and He shows everyone how it's done. He comes in on the scene. He ends up keeping every one of the laws. He fulfills all that law. And then He ends up dying a death and then He ends up defeating death. He ends up conquering death at His resurrection. And then, after He goes and comes to this earth and shows everybody how it's done, we're still not that great, are we? But at the same time, thankfully, you know, He's given us His Word and showed us that, you know what? We don't have to be good to go to heaven. All we've got to do is have faith. He says, all you've got to do is put your faith in Me and I'll give you righteousness because of your faith, not your works. And you know what? We're even messing up on that. Because look at how most of man is still thinking, no, I can do this. You know, Lord, I, I can do this. I can go get baptized. You know, I can be good. I can live a whole life without killing anybody. You know, I can, I can do this. I can do that. You know, and then we make up our own rules for what a person's got to do to get saved. And that's another one of these things these camp meeting preachers are doing. We're trying to figure out what the official doctrine is in the camp meeting world on what, how many sins a person has to repent of in order to get saved or how many good works you have to do to prove you actually are saved. There's a lot of these guys, no church, no salvation. I, out of their own mouths, saying no church, no salvation. Really? Well, then I, I've got, there's one guy I know. He's saying, if you just go to church on Sunday and you're not back on Sunday night, Wednesday night, he's saying you're probably not saved. So now we've got to go to church three times a week? Two? I mean, good night. I mean, and it just gets more and more strict. The one guy, too, you know, some of you wives, you're mean to your husbands. You say you got saved when you were a child. I doubt it. Well, so now we've got to go to church three times a week and be nice to our husbands? What if our husband's a jerk? You know, what, we we got to do all those things. I mean, and they just keep adding to it depending on what, what they're preaching. And you know what? If I had time to sit around and do this kind of thing, it would be fun to go listen to one of these goofballs or go to a camp meeting and just take notes on all the things a person has to do to prove they're actually saved. And it would be a long list in some of these meetings that you go to. And it is just sick. I mean, some of these, you can just, you can just see the devil, I mean, in their eyes. I just watched one guy, man. I mean, the guy is just the embodiment of evil. I guarantee you he's a pervert. I mean, just he just screams pervert just to, to look at him. And you hear him talking like, you know, if you don't repent of your sins, you're not even saved. And I'm thinking, good night. It's the devil himself right there preaching that. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, the most, it's the most disturbing thing. I mean, we, we can't even do that. Jesus comes along, makes it clear, just trust me. It's not by works. Just have faith, and yet we still 
you know, most world's still trying to do it. But thankfully, not everybody. Thankfully, there's those who are of faith. And so Hebrews 2, it's basically a warning not to reject Jesus Christ. He is everything that was prophesied and Jesus is what they were always about and they needed to accept the better covenant that was given to them. We'll see more about that when we get later into Hebrews. But it is, it's very clear from these first two chapters. It's very clear from just what we know about the Hebrews and about the Jews is how steep these people were into tradition. And it would be hard for them to change some things. But he's trying to show them here that, hey, this change that you're about to make, this is what you all have been waiting for. This is what's been prophesied. And your changing of your traditions and things, this is in complete and total obedience to the law, to the law of God. And you've got no excuses for doubting it. You have the words of Jesus Christ who is so much better than the angels. You have God the Father. You have, I mean, you had the Holy Spirit who did miracles. No excuse for doubting Jesus Christ. And that is why, too, it's clear, too, you know, that Jews today who do not believe, it, it's because they're blinded. They truly are blinded. They are, and it's, they're blinded because of the hardness of their heart. You have to be very, very hard to not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, you, you have to be blind to read the Old Testament and not see Jesus Christ. But that's where many people are at. And so, that's Hebrews 2. I hope that was a help to you. So let's go ahead and close the word prayer. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, we thank You so much for coming to this earth, Lord, and, uh, and saving us, Lord. You, you did every bit of the work Lord, as we, as we study the Bible and as we just look at Hebrews chapter 2, Lord, it's so clear that we've got nothing to boast in, Lord. Uh, absolutely nothing we can brag on except for You. And Lord, I pray You'll help us to do that, Lord. And I pray, I pray You'll help us to reject the teachings of these, these men who glory in their flesh, Lord, and who uh, instead of pointing pe- people to You or they're pointing people to themselves, as an example of what salvation is. Lord, I pray You'll help us to have the right attitude and that we'll be like Paul when we see ourselves, we'll be disgusted. And Lord, I just pray that the disgust with ourselves and our vile bodies, will it will cause us to have that blessed hope that one day we will have a body like Your glorious body and we will be looking for that blessed hope. And I just pray that You'll uh, help each one as they go their separate ways this week. In Your name we pray. Amen.